We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. I strongly recommend it. Yet, Jose's melting down, and we are all here for it. So, to help me discuss how things are going wrong at United, and how the tables have turned, and how now suddenly that cup that was a nothing cup is the only cup that all those shitty teams like uh, Spurs and Chelsea and United are playing for. Meanwhile, we carry the banner. We carry the flag uh, in Europe, along with City and Liverpool. You'll find Tim on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, indeed. Which of the 12 minutes was your favourite, Tim? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't watch um, the entire 12 minutes because, um, yeah, I just didn't quite have time. Um, but it was it was quite extraordinary, really, his, his run. And, and even after they beat Brighton, he was still kind of on the offensive. And... Um, Bullying, Lu- bullying Luke Shaw, pretty good. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I kind of wonder really what that's all about. I've, I've always had this suspicion with Mourinho. I don't know if you're familiar with. Um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the film. It's. Uh, I don't know if you're Peter familiar Sellers. with it. Then, to be fair, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Peter Sellers, um, and he plays a character called Chauncey Gardner, who is 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 actually a gardener. <laughs> and he keeps saying these things that everybody thinks is, is really, really profound. He thinks everyone thinks that he's making these really profound metaphors about gardening, and he actually like rises to an advisory job in the U.S. government because everyone assumes that he's coming up with these uh, literally flowery metaphors, and he's not. He's actually just talking about gardening um, the whole time, and that's kind of what I've always felt about Jose Mourinho. Everyone always kind of assumes that there's some big mind game, there's some, like, psychological masterclass going on. And I've never thought that there is. I think he's just a prick. He just enjoys falling out with people. He enjoys fighting people. And for about 10 years, everyone was just like, oh, yeah, this is him, you know, producing a siege mentality. And this is him, you know, being the alpha male in the group. And I just don't think it is. I just think he's a prick and he likes fighting people he likes conflict. He enjoys it. Um, I don't think he particularly cares whether that gets the best out of his players or not. It's just he's almost like, you know how Harry Redknapp was addicted to the transfer market? He could not <laughs> stop himself I'm buying a fucking football manager. <laughs> like, like that season Tottenham were going really well and then he signed Ryan Nelson and Lewis Saha for no reason, completely unbalanced the team because he was addicted to transfers. He had to buy players. And I think Mourinho is just addicted to fighting people. That's what he enjoys. And, to, to be um, fair to Redknapp, there there may have been some money going into his dog's bank account that was well, why he was addicted to transfers. But there there is that as well. I mean, you know what but, it reminds me of, Tim? What you're describing is almost like with Trump where there are people who say like, oh, he's, he's a genius of mind games. You know, all of this yeah. chaos that he foments is to take attention off this or he's got this savvy media plan when in fact he may just be a, a narcissist, a bloviating narcissist. Bloviating? Yeah. Um, and, and it's kind of starting to look like that with Jose. And I think even yeah. if you go back and see, he's always played this sort of dour defense Defensive football in the hope that his expensively paid, handsomely paid attacking players would just kind of bail him out up front. And mm. it's been lauded as some sort of genius tactic because it won him trophies with massively talented teams, Porto aside. But like now yeah. in the cold light of day, I'm not so sure it's ever been anything more than just a fear-based football. No, and it's more difficult. It's underdog football, and it's it's easy to get like small clubs like Chelsea and Porto playing like that. Touche. It doesn't work. It, it, yeah, I'm glad you noticed that. It doesn't work at Manchester United. It doesn't really work at Real Madrid. And also, I think his um, his methods are very short term. You know that short, sharp shock thing. And what happens when you've been in the game for a while? People work out what you're about. And he's now managing. You know, he's in this small like circle of managing kind of elite football clubs and all the players talk to each other they know each other there's so much um there's so much dressing room leaking that goes on now and, and everyone knows what he's about basically so i don't i don't see this like picking on pogba and picking on luke shaw and i you know i, I don't think it's going to do them any good and i don't even think it's meant to i think it's just because he has a pathological desire to fight people. And I think it's as simple as that and always has been. Yeah, and I'm enjoying every minute of it because this is supposed to be happening in his third season and it's happening in the second. And Clive, I guess my question to you is have we kind of reached the threshold with this where 
you know, United have unlimited resources. And when you have unlimited resources, as long as you're not in complete chaos, you should be able to get to the top or very near the top and challenge for all the biggest honors. Is the chaos that Jose brings to United now a benefit? Do we Are we at the point now where we want him to stay? I think um, first things first, I think Mourinho is all about him. And it's all about speaking from a position of strength. And so his winning record has always given him the ability to talk from strength, right? He can quote his trophies and he can quote what he's done, you know, winning leagues in every country he's been in. He's happy to do it. And, <laughs> yeah, and he'll, and, and he'll tell you about it. So he's got a position of strength. The situation at Manchester United is is that, okay, he's now getting strength from the length of his contract. So since he signed his contract, he started to take people out. He took out Pogba, he took out Shaw, he's attacking players because he feels strong now. Whatever happens, he'll get a nice big payoff. Right? So before the contract was being signed, there was all talks of PSG. That went quiet very quickly and suddenly he's taking Pogba out of the team. Now he's dropping Sanchez. Okay, it may have been you know, just for a cup game. So he's, he's revving up. He's revving up. And mm-hmm. My personal opinion is he's a frustrated footballer. That's what he really wants to be. And he, he wants to be the star. And so he's he just addicted, like Tim talked about, how he read that, addicted to the transfer market. For me, I think he's addicted to trauma. And as long as that trauma is around him, he knows he can handle it. And he brings it all amongst himself because he becomes a star. I think that's what he's trying to do. I think he's trying to establish himself as the main man. And by taking out some big people, Luke Shaw's not a big person. That's just bordering on bullying. But um, Pogba is a big person. Right? And I think by focusing on those individuals, it, it, it elevates him. Right? It elevates him to a position of, I'm the main man. I, I've always felt he was a frustrated footballer. He walks around like he's a footballer, signing autographs like he's a footballer. And he never was a player, never will be. It's the one thing that irks him, that he hasn't got a, a heritage, to quote his words, as a long term in football from a youth, you know, going through the academies, you know, he hasn't got that. So I always felt he's an outsider trying to prove himself to all the people within the game. You know, he started off as an interpreter and that was his way in. And I think we can't deny he's done some great things, but I just feel he's um a frustrated football person that likes to pull the attention towards him. And I I don't with Tim a little bit. I don't think he's a, a master plan. I just think it shows weakness in his personality, and I think it's coming out much sooner than it normally does <laughs> in this scenario. You're yeah. absolutely right, year two rather than year three. Yeah, and look, I mean, at the end of the day, I just think, and I have no love for Manchester United, but if I put myself into the the m- mode of a Manchester United supporter, if I could put myself into that mindset, I mean, of course I'd be a, a trophy-hunting cunt, but like, I would also expect my team to play attacking football because when you have that, the resources that they have allow them to buy superior players. And when you buy superior players, it's incumbent upon you to play superior football. That's, I think that that is really axiomatic. I don't think you can have a billion dollar squad and set it up to park the bus. And so, you know, if I were a United fan, even with any success that he could bring, I would feel that I should be treated to better football, that that the club has players that are capable of playing better football. And so I, I think he's just a dismal disappointment. I think he's terrible for the supporters. I think he's terrible for the players. Long may it continue. Over at Arsenal, and by the way, what a terrible couple of weeks for London-based <coughs> football fans when you consider that Spurs, Chelsea, and Manchester United crashed out of the Champions League. Boom! 
There you go. Um, in any event, it uh, wasn't a terrible week for North London-based football fans because, once again, North London proving itself to be red, at least in Europe, and Arsenal get past Milan, and we're on our way to Moscow, where I'm sure... And now, Tim, you are not making the trip. Uh, no. So you do not have to worry about the polonium punch? The polonium no, punch? I'm, I'm going <laughs> no? purely out of political protest and not because I can't afford it. I Yes, that sounds right. T- to be fair, can I ask you really, really quickly, and just be mm. candid here, you know, that's what we're here for. If you had all the money in the world, would you still stay away from this one? No, no, I'd definitely go. You'd go? Yeah. You, you no know, no one's intimidating you from I mean you you've been to no. White Hart Lane in the in the heat of battle. You're you're <laughs> not you're Lassio. not scared of two hundred and eighty pounds, six percent body fat, PCP <laughs> loaded up and uh ready to rumble Russians in the I land, mean, no? <laughs> um, no, no, I've you know, I've been to some places that are meant to be quite scary and no no i'd have been all right it is purely financial decision and um getting a visa is a real pain at short notice and look i'm I'm sure that the vast majority of the supporters who will be at the stadium who are russian will be lovely um obviously there's there's hooligan culture everywhere but you you just tend to spot it more in in those those Russian stadiums sometimes I think it's it's certainly played up and I worry a little bit with the geopolitical situation going on that it might be exacerbated but yeah. we'll see um so we did get past Milan but I, I want to start with the lineup and one of the things that you know I I bleed on about and there's so many things that I I bleed on about <laughs> that it's hard to keep track of them but one of them is meritocracy that that Arsene Wenger in recent seasons has moved away from having a meritocracy that that his lineup selection is chosen sometimes more by his personal feelings for players or you know con- contract negotiations or circumstances outside of who's playing the best i'm curious to get your balance between the decision to start jack wilshire over Mohamed El Neni as a tactical one and whether it was the right tactical one versus one that was based on extrinsic factors, non-footballing factors, given that El Neni had had arguably his best game as an Arsenal player, certainly one of his more progressive and dynamic games at the weekend. Mm. I, I think probably the decision was made a few, like before that Watford game. Um, I also think that Wenger was probably quite worried about Arsenal being too cautious and therefore he wanted to stick with the original plan. He wanted to stick with the team that that played so well out in Milan a week before. And I think he maybe thought, well, if I start Elneny here, that almost looks psychologically like a defensive move. And what I really don't want to do is play defensively and invite Milan onto us. So I tend to think that that was probably behind it. Um, and Jack, you know, didn't have a great game in Milan. I thought he was slightly better um, in this game, actually. And also, you know, you've got to completely rejig the team if you do that, because if you play Elneny, you've got to play him next to Xhaka, which means you then have to move Ramsey um, into the into the front line, which, you know, you could do, but he was, he'd been so effective the week before as well, playing in his normal central midfield position, or you... You know, you start Iwobi, and I, I don't think Arsene really wanted to do that. He didn't even bring him on as a sub. So um, a little bit limited choices, a little bit it would have been a big rejig, and a little bit that um, he didn't want to come across too defensive. I think at this stage, the sentiment part with Jack is probably out the window because um, it looks like Arsenal aren't budging on the contract offer, and it looks like... Jack isn't really interested in the contract he's been offered. It looks like a complete deadlock. It doesn't look like anyone's massively heartbroken 
um, about that either, certainly not um, either of the two parties. So I'm not sure at this stage there is a lot of sentiment <clears throat> in, in you know, playing Wilshire ahead of El Elneny. Um, but I think it will be interesting to see what he does in the next round to that effect, particularly if Elneny plays against, say, Stoke at home in our next game and, and puts in a very similar performance. I mean, I will say I was slightly surprised that Jack got the armband after Koscielny went off. Um, that there are mm. you know more senior players and players that I think you know maybe could have an argument for for taking the armband. Although, look, Jack is an academy player, so maybe he has the longest standing connection to the club, and that may be behind yeah. it. I'm not sure temperament-wise he's really captain material, not because he doesn't have the blood and thunder in him, but maybe because he has too much of that in him. Mm. Um, but But who knows? Anyway, I mean... So, Clive, we, we start the game in sort of typical Arsenal fashion. We have a two-goal away lead, and in the early minutes, Andre Silva is straight through, unmarked, and hits the side netting. And you know, I bleed on about a lot of things, and this is one of the things I bleed on about. Don't worry, you haven't just rewound the podcast. I'm just doing that bit again. Um, which is that we are terrible at situational football. So... Does it drive you nuts to see us with a two-goal lead five minutes into the match, winding up with a player totally unmarked in behind our back four? Uh, <laughs> not really. No, it's not really surprising. I, how, does, I felt- how does that happen? How do you, you know? You know what I mean? Like, how do you? You would think the one thing that you say is we're going to keep it really compact. We're going to track our runners. We're going to keep an eye on on. Get it, you know, people running in behind. The midfield's going to sit a little deeper earlier. Let's get our our hands around the game before we before we let it get too open. I mean, I, look, I know we wound up winning. We'll get in all the great stuff about it and and whether Danny Welbeck will recover from that that being chopped down in the area and all that. But um, I mean, isn't isn't this the the issue? The situational football. I mean, that could easily have been a goal. And then Kalinoglu or Kalinoglu's goal isn't isn't a goal that makes it close, but a, a, a goal that levels the tie. Yeah, I mean, what you said there is how you would approach the game, right? So you're thinking with the with the natural fear of a fan. Okay, let's set up nice and tight. Make sure we don't let anything happen at the first 15 minutes. Make sure we're well structured. Make sure we watch our runners off our shoulders. All sensible thoughts, right? But what do you think Benga says? He says, let's go out there and play our stuff. Let's get on the ball. Let's move the ball through. Let's make sure we get Ozil, Jack, and um, Mkhitaryan on the ball as much as we possibly can. And um, let's get our fullbacks up to do support line runs and, and just play our way. That's what we do. And it has it does not change in the slightest. And the selection told you that, right? So we picked, again, we picked one of our best on-the-ball teams that we possibly have. We didn't have a thought to off the ball hardly at all. I thought that um, the setup of the team wasn't bad. I actually felt that Jack was... I'm not sure about him in that position. I've got to be honest with you. I think um, we use him as a almost like a first defender. I think he's doing far too much wasted running. Um, and I think he looked like a fish out of water slightly. But I felt the whole game, we knew we were levels better than them. I thought they had moments where they showed inefficiency in finishing. But the real, the real test of the game and the real test of the levels was once they scored, our reaction was instant. And you saw the levels go up. And I think sometimes players instinctively know if they're better than the opposition and they can turn it on. And that was a real, real sign to me that they thought we're better than these. And I thought we were a bit loose because of it. And they were getting shots off. And I just felt we just didn't think they were going to score. And then they did. And then we had to react to it. Well, to be fair, they hadn't. 
after the Andre Santos chance, they hadn't really created anything, and we had been very much on top of them, and it was a goal that came from nothing. I mean, do, do you do you want Ospina to save? I mean, obviously you want Ospina to save that, but is is it sometimes just a case of looking for a flaw where no flaw exists? Was it just a, a great goal? I went to the game, and I, I was surprised that, that it went in. I got to see you. Um, it was a good effort. It wasn't that great. He looked like a little old man falling to the side from where I was sitting. He looks like and, that, uh, period. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not inspiring, actually. That should not be going. In. It was. A, it was a really good effort, but the sort of effort the goalkeeper pushes around the post, he's a corner, and everyone claps. You don't expect it to go in, right? So, um, so yeah, I thought one of the two things that stuck with me on the day actually was our lack of directness. I thought um, there were. You can really. I, I know where Tim sits in the ground. I was the opposite side, but really quite high, right on the halfway line, so I could have a good view. And I could see the movement, and what I couldn't see was the risk-taking and the bravery to hit the first movement. And there were many times when you could see that happening all over the pitch. I think there's a there's a general lack of directness in our play. I think we, we look after the ball really well. We've got a lovely technical ability when we receive it and how we move it. We get nice early pictures. But what we don't do, if I compare us to Man City, which is the, the Vogue team at the moment, I feel they push the ball into areas that can hurt you much quicker. And they really do work from there and they do it at pace. And I feel that we are sometimes just a little bit passive in our movements. And we are, it's almost like a 15 passes and a goal sort of thing you do in training, right? Mm -hmm. I, I just feel we need to change that. It's becoming a little bit samey. And I'm not, and t t Tim will tell you, in the ground people are saying, shoot all the time from all different angles. I'm not one of those. But I am saying, pass it earlier. Pass it quicker. Pass it into areas. Don't worry about losing it. Make people defend. They're not that good. Mkhitaryan seems to be more about that, to be fair. That, that seems to be yeah. in his game, something, and it's something we've missed. Yeah, it is, but it's a general, there's a lovely shape and a lovely pattern to how we play. But I just feel on occasion, when we have got good control, good game momentum, hurt teams a bit more. You know, you look at our goals for record compared to the other teams. It's not great in the top six, right? We are not creating enough killer moments. We are not scoring enough. And that's putting pressure on our defensive side. And I think... Mm -hmm. You know, if I could look at it from a, a holistic view, what I walked away from the game was definitely we're not direct enough, we're not intense enough offensively. We we don't challenge people in the areas they want to be challenged. Just when they're getting tired, just when they're moved off the spot, we turn out, go out the other side. Maybe that was a two 0 scoreline that did some of that, but I just feel it's a common thing now. I see, and it's really clear when you're in the ground, you can see the lack of offensive directness to me. Yeah, and, and certainly, I mean, I, I would argue that over these two legs, we were better about that, and certainly against Watford as well, but I definitely think it's been a problem not just this season, but the last couple of seasons. Last season, I think it was e even worse, arguably, um, and a lot of that was attributed to Alexis Sanchez, and who knows, maybe that Mkhitaryan coming into the side now and with Aubameyang, we'll start to see it drift out of the squad, but it's it's still there, and I, I agree with you that it's a problem. Tim, I'm going to give you a choice. You want to talk oh. about football or the pantomime? <laughs> let's go with the pantomime. Okay, so Why let's not? do it. So um, Danny Welbeck gets into the area. Mm. Now, yeah. I want to be clear about something. In the first leg of this tie, towards the end, Danny Welbeck attempted to shoot from about 20 yards out, 
and manage to not strike the ball and fall to the ground and then look for anybody to bail him out with a call or something, but there was no one near him. So the very, very first question I want to ask you is, how much, you know, use a percentage factor here. What percentage of the dive is an intentional dive and what percentage of it is he's a new baby full still learning to use his legs? <laughs> on this occasion for this one, not the one in the first leg, I think there was a bit more, should we say, clumsiness about that one. This one at the Emirates, just an absolute out-and-out dive. So you think uh, no 100%, percent, there's, there's, no, yeah, yeah. there's no question of him just being incapable of, of controlling the, the legs? No, okay. no, no, because, you know, he's... He's clumsy with a football, but he's not clumsy when he runs. Um, he's, you know, he's an athlete when he runs, and he can cover ground. And that was a feel a tap on the shoulder, and he takes another step and then goes down. Um, it, it's a dive. It's a really bad, unconvincing one that I can't believe two officials between them bought. We got a lot of um, calls on the night, by the way. A lot, <laughs> like all of them. It's, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it was absolutely a a dive, no questions, uh, no questions asked. Um, How do you react enough, to in it? The stadium. Okay, go well, ahead. Funnily then. enough, in the stadium at the time, because I'm slightly on the other side, I was convinced it was a penalty. So I can Me kind too. of understand how the ref might have thought so, because I, I was, I didn't even wait for the appeal. I was straight up. Um, maybe it was because it was Welbeck as well. And I, you know, if if it had been <clears throat> a player who with more of a reputation. I, I might have hesitated, but I was like, oh, that's a penalty. Um, so maybe from the referee's angle, I can understand that. The guy who's standing like two yards away from it behind the line don't really understand how he buys it. So at the time, I had no idea. And it wasn't until I left the stadium and saw the videos that, that I understood that it was <clears throat> a complete dive. How do I react to it? I really, really don't know. I haven't made my mind up. Um, I mean, no one wants diving in the, the game, trees. right? Like, if if, if, no, if, exactly. if I said to you, Tim, you could snap your fingers and all diving would go out of the game immediately, yes. obviously you'd snap your fingers. But, like, given yeah. that it happens, that it's done to us, given the, the the conversation that's... The weird conversation that's developed around it this season with Pochettino basically saying it's, it's part of the game, I mean, some yeah. very weird rationalizing that's gone on. Do you find yourself more open to the idea that all these other cunts are doing it you know, once in a while, I don't mind if we do. A little bit, yeah. But at the same time, I realise that's my my kind of tribalism. Bias yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. yeah. And it's it's not really rational, and we talk ourselves around it. I, I think the one thing I would say is that, um, as a kind of litmus test, I am more inured to it now when other teams do it. Like <clears throat> I watch Tottenham do it quite a lot, and I have to say, it doesn't bother me like it used to. And I think it's just because of the regularity with which it happens nowadays. It's a bit like, um, you know, I, I asked a question for the Ask Ask Extra, like, and and the question, the way I put it was, is diving like, you know, lunchtime kickoffs and stadium naming rights one of those things that we don't really like, but there's not really anything we can do about it now. So do we just have to accept it? But I also accept that I only asked that question after an Arsenal player did it, but. I generally don't think it bothers me as much when other teams do it now. I think I've been slightly worn down by it, um, to be quite honest. So, to to be honest, I, I can't really be bothered with the pantomime, whether it's an Arsenal player or not. One thing I will say, um, and generally speaking, right, people get far too 
people always take look to take the responsibility away from the players and put it onto the officials and the authorities and, and things like that. So I don't want to do that when I say this. But something I will say, and I know we've spoken about it on this pod before, I, I really don't understand the authorities complete like why they're so terrified of pub- of punishing it after the fact. Like even the FA in the Premier League bought in this um, you know, retrospective act uh, action for diving and they don't use it they're terrified and Ca- I don't counterpoint understand. Tim, may, I, I think you may be missing the sort of nose in front of your face here maybe they consider letting him play for us to be the penalty the punishment <laughs> is, is that is that possibly but, where well, this is yeah. there, there is that too but also the other the other thing as well here is i saw you know uefa say they're not going to take any action and i thought but UEFA, they don't. They never do that. They, they literally, right, they invented that rule for Eduardo. It was completely unprecedented. Never been um, used since. When, <laughs> well, yeah, because Arsenal got it overturned in court. They went to the court of arbitration and got it overturned because this rule did not exist. And I Googled it today because someone said, I, I swear I haven't heard of UEFA like, talking either way about action for diving. And I don't know, maybe someone else can try, but I did the Google test, and literally those are the only two examples I can, can find. Can I, give, can I give you what I think is at play anything. here, though? But, but I, I, I think I know what's at play here. I mean, isn't it possible, and Tim, you are a big J journalist, so you may you may know this better than I do, but like, couldn't this be a little bit of shenanigans where a journalist goes to some UEFA member and says, can you maybe. go on the record and tell me whether you're going to ban Welbeck for diving? And he comes out and says, no, we're not going to ban Welbeck for diving. And they come out and they say, well, yeah. UEFA will take no action. I mean, if they're asked maybe. the question, it does, does it look like they're putting out a statement, you know? Maybe, maybe. But it, it does it does beg the question. Lots and lots of clubs compete in UEFA um, competitions. It, it's kind of difficult to believe that in eight and a half years that hasn't happened before. But maybe maybe, maybe you're right. But, um, but at the same time, I recognise that because we're Arsenal fans, we are kind of prevaricating around this issue. And it was completely a dive. Um, I'd have been really unhappy if it had happened against us and, and it had been given. Um, Do you think the reaction is, I, out, is outsized, though? I mean, it certainly feels outsized. Yeah. Is that my tribalism speaking, or is that, is that the fact? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it is a little bit. I think there's, there's an element of we were the only team playing on a Thursday night when the Premier League's finished for two and a half weeks. And, you know, it's, it, it's, there's, there's some of that going into it as well. I, I did think it was quite... And to be fair, as Arsenal fans, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's it's really only come from one journalist, hasn't it? Like, I haven't seen massively widespread coverage of this. Um, and it's, He gave it's kind him of a zero one. in his player rating. Yeah. I mean, he and scored two goals. <laughs> he gave him a zero. <laughs> it's, it's a really, really odd one because... I mean, the day before you have an interview coming out with Deli Ali just strikes me as a really, really weird time. You're going to call that an interview? I mean, it's a puff piece. Well, yeah, yeah, it is. It's a total puff piece, and that's fine. Like, you know, I understand. Yeah, I'm not saying it has to, to be uh, Frost Nixon or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But that is a really peculiar time. And I know, you know, well, sorry, I say I know. I'm guessing that sometimes because John Cross is and was a big Arsenal fan, and he was, he went like, I have a good friend who used to go with him and he used to go home and away. And uh, I understand that, you know, sometimes he might have to think, yeah, do you know what? I have to show that I'm not biased here. 
and you know maybe there's a bit of that going into it i don't know maybe he was just genuinely appalled by it and had the fainting couch out but it, I, it I did think so it yeah. did seem quite <laughs> it did seem quite weird um to be honest um but that that's not to say that you know in reality like danny welbeck does deserve that it was a dive it was a calculated piece of cheating and i suppose the problem most arsenal fans have is not that they didn't think that but that we don't see it treated the same way with you know other players and obviously ali is the example that's always given because we're arsenal fans and we're tribal and we hate tottenham and actually i think delhi ali gets a lot of focus uh for his diving um i think it's it's pretty well reported in in media circles so i don't think that we can honestly say oh no one ever talks about it when it's Delhi alley because i think they do um but yeah it's 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 a weird one but it's it's one of those that it's really difficult to see the wood for the trees because it's very difficult to even when you think you're casting your tribalism aside um sometimes it's difficult to know how much you've you've actually done so yeah that's fair well clive i've got, I've got several questions for you about this but i do want you to weigh in sort of on your feeling about do you did you do you own a fainting couch and did you faint on it? No, I I, I was absolutely convinced it was a penalty in the stadium. No problem at all. So did, did thought, you fall on your subsequent fainting couch when you got home? <laughs> no, I, I was well. I, I didn't go until late. I had a massive drink on that night, so I um, got home and and next day it was, it was it was all going off on Twitter in the morning and uh, and I watched it all because I was working from home, <laughs> shall we say? So um so yeah, I would. I'm not worried, right? It was a Thursday night, only team playing. Needed some, needed some media activity before the Champions League draw and Europa League draw the next day, and we were the we were the focus. And then it's all gone a little bit quiet. I think Welbeck got touched. I think he thought he went down belatedly. I, I don't think it was calculated. I just, I just, I just don't think it was. I think it was an afterthought, and and it was a very slow afterthought, which made it look like a dive. Do you see what I mean? So, um, and he hasn't got a reputation for doing it. I don't think he's that good at doing it, and I'm not sure he's going to ever do it again, to be honest. But I don't really care so much because football's a unique game where if you influence one person in the middle of the pitch, you can influence the result of the game. Yeah, and every single team has focus on how they attack the referee, how they influence the referee, how they make him their 12th man. It's a it's a game plan for many teams. You watch some European games and it's just literally two teams versus a ref until they've got some sort of advantage. They've got a key player booked and then they start playing. And Barcelona made a reputation of it getting players sent off. I mean... This is just the way football going. If you think it's going to go a different way, then you better reduce the money, the pressure, the amount of time managers get sacked. Well, I think Tim, Tim's solution get... would be bringing the VAR, but yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and and let's not talk about that, right? No, let's That's please a not. Whole separate no, podcast. Please not. But, um, and this is the way football's going. It's a unique game where you influence one individual. And VAR is all VAR is going to. I can't know. You got me thinking about VAR. Is VAR going to. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> is it is it going to benefit that or is it not? Right? And I, I'm, I I say not. Um, but yeah, it's not going to change. Let's say this. Just, just real quick up. to that it's point, Clive. Just real quick. If you eliminate the benefit for diving, then there's no reason to do it because you will both humiliate yourself and not get a penalty. So while I'm not saying we should bring in VAR, I'll be agnostic on that for the purpose of this pod. What I will say yeah. is. 
if you know that diving will lead to you being ridiculed, but also give you no chance or a very, very, very minuscule chance of getting a penalty, that will eliminate diving over time because it's a simple, it's simple incentive issue. Once you eliminate the incentive, it'll eliminate the action. But anyway, go ahead. It's a skill, right? So I've been watching, I've been having a good look at Spurs and how they do it. And I, I watch them when they're under pressure, when they go one goal behind. And you, I can see what they do. They put a lot of square balls across the area and they sprint into the box multiple times. When you're sprinting at top speed, any contact is going to force the referee to make a decision. And they do this continuously. They hit the box hard, they run into the box hard, and they provoke decisions. Right, and Deli Ali is the best at it. It's a calculated plan. I'm not saying they dive in, but they just provoke decisions and collisions and moments where you have to think about what's happening in front of you. And they do it very, very cleverly. I don't think we do that. I think we play football. If the situation presents itself, any professional will take it. And I think Welbeck took it, and I think he took it late. Yeah. Right. So that that's football. It's not going to change. It's, it's, it's absolutely not going to change. And if you try to bring in legislation after the fact, then good luck proving it. Because even Welbeck on the other day could say, I got a touch on my shoulder and I was off balance and I fell over. Yeah. Simple as that. Well, all right. So look, the next, even more astounding than the penalty is that Welbeck was the designated penalty taker. So where was your heart in the moment that you realized he was going to be taking it? And how preposterous did that seem to you? Yeah, well, as soon as the penalty got awarded, there was a bit of kerfuffle. I was thinking, is it going to get turned over? And then you immediately start to scan the players on the pitch. <laughs> You're thinking, who's going to take this? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because Ozil can't kick it that far. Right? So, um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Mkhitaryan, I wasn't too sure about. Ramsey? Um, Ramsey, I'm not, I'm not seeing him take a penalty. Maybe once, I've not seen him take a penalty. So, um, Shaka, um, again, I wasn't too sure. And so I'm looking around the team thinking, who's going to take this? So Ramsey was hanging over it, and then Welbeck come along. And, uh, yeah, I've got to be honest with you, right? I, I, I turned around. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even see it go in. Was it, was it a I good penalty? Like, I've only watched it once. I've not seen a replay of it. To me, it it's looks like – it. did it even hit the back of the net? I thought, didn't he just kind of like roll it and the keeper went the wrong – like he, he gets the keeper to go the wrong way. So that's good. But is it yeah. a good penalty? Yeah, he was a good. He was a good player. He okay. shaped it, mate. He he shaped, he shaped it out and, and whipped it into the bottom, into the bottom post. Yeah, that was that was quality. Okay, well, all right. So so he he scores the penalty. I look. I mean, at the end of the day, we won the tie comfortably, and I just think it's insane to be having a debate about diving at the end of a five-one. Uh, tie and look i realize all these individual moments matter if we don't get the penalty there and it's still one nil it's still a little nervy but there are a lot of moments in football that could go one way or could go the other way so i i just think when you pick one and you say what if that had gone the other way well i could pick five others and say the same thing so one i'll stay with you clive for just a second here and i'll give tim a shot at this as well one of the things that i thought was really really encouraging well there are really two two things that were really encouraging. The, the three things no one expects about the Spanish Inquisition are, um, the, the one thing that I was going to come to at this point was the Ozil and Mkhitaryan partnership. And they really seem to be understanding when to switch sides. Uh, Mkhitaryan would pop up on whichever the opposite side of wherever Ozil wanted to go. It seemed like he sort of reacted to Ozil's movement. They looked for each other. They found each other a lot. And they starting to develop that partnership that I think you would say Ozil and Alexis had previously were you really encouraged and are you really encouraged by the way Mkhitaryan is starting to grow into the team and specifically with respect to how he's dovetailing with Ozil? 
yeah, it's it's nice to see. It's not a total surprise because they're they're good players. You can see they're going to be on the same wavelength. I do have a concern about, oh, I said before about our goals. I see them as attacking midfielders. Are they going to score enough? I I still would like another forward in there, right? So well, to so be fair, we have Aubameyang and Lacazette, right? So I mean, you, you know, it's easy to forget when when you got Welbeck up front, but. Yeah, but let's say we have a Bamiyang up there. We're then relying on him to do a lot of the goal scoring. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to see somebody else score. I know Mkhitaryan's only just started. Well, you hate I'm Ramsey, but he would be your guy. No, I don't hate Ramsey no, no, no. at it's, all. It's been, a, it's been clearly established. It's fine. Keep going. Uh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, but no, let's, let's have a look. at. It's not enough. Do you see what I mean? Oh, I don't. We need I agree. To, we, need, we need a wide forward. We need, we need a true winger. We don't have one. Yeah, I'll be happy if Ramsey scores six goals a season but dominates midfield. I'll be happy with that. That means we're not conceding, teams are not overrunning us, and we're creating chances for our forwards that should be there to score in their part of the pitch. I don't want the burden to be on Ramsey to score goals. I want it to be on one of our forward players, whether it be in a two or three, and I want our midfield to be held and to be moved and to be controlled. So I don't want him to be the person. I want it to be Ozil, Mkhitaryan, Lacazette, Aubameyang, and then Ramsey is the next one in. Do you see what I mean? I do. But Ozil yep. doesn't, he's not obsessed enough with scoring. Mkhitaryan we're still learning about. Lacazette we're still learning about. And Aubameyang we're all hopeful about. So I'm not convinced we have the balance yet. We've got to devastate teams more and score more. And we're not doing it. So I'm looking forward, projecting forward, and I don't see it. It's nice. They're nice players, right? Guess what? We've got two number 10s that can pass to each other. You know what? I've had to, we've had that since Alex Head walked into the team, right? We've had that. We've had it ever since, right? So, um, and I, we've always had that sort of those sort of players. But I want to see more devastation, more forward players, and more goal scorers. How about for you, Tim? I mean, I, I was really interested in their movement and the way they they sort of seemed to be in this this dance together, where Ozil would go where he wanted to go, and Mkhitaryan would react to it and pop up on the other side of the pitch. I don't know if it was being instructed to them. Maybe you could tell from your seat if the manager was. <laughs> Get it? The manager was instructing them. No, I'm kidding. Um, if it was just purely Mkhitaryan reacting to to Ozil or or vice versa, and what you think of of the relationship they're developing? I, uh, I I completely agree with Clive. I I think yeah, I think Ozil and Mkhitaryan in and of themselves are developing a good relationship. The the question for me is is can Mkhitaryan so I, I think that there's a bit of a chasm between Ozil and the striker, be that Welbeck, Aubameyang, whoever. Um, and we saw Lacazette struggle because he just didn't have enough support. And that was even with Alexis in the team. And um, it, for me, it's can Mkhitaryan fill that space between Ozil and the striker? Now, the way Mkhitaryan played in Milan, that's that's promising. That because he carried a lot of goal threat and he stayed quite advanced on the shoulder of the full-back, looking to cut in. And I I thought that looked very promising. But I completely share uh, close reservations about the lack of goal scorers. I think that's been an issue for quite a while. And basically what we've not really done, uh, you can't really replace Sanchez because he's such a unique player. Um, I I can't think of too many others like him in Europe. Like, I'm not even talking about quality-wise, I'm thinking style-wise. Um, you know, he's, he's more like a, a Neymar, um, really, that kind of provocateur. You know, he, he likes to he likes to touch the ball. He likes to get on the ball. He likes to take people on. He likes to score goals. You know, he doesn't have 
a really fixed position. There aren't many players like that around, for better or worse. I, and I mean, unfortunately, me, you could argue we've got a few of them in our squad, <laughs> in the sense yeah. that you know Ozil goes wherever he wants, and Ramsey seems to go wherever he wants, and yeah. you know, we have a lot of that. Indeed, and like you said, we, we kind of lack a wide forward. Look at our wide forward options, and it's kind of, it won't be, we had Wilshire playing there. You know, there's not there's not a lot of guys who can... They're all shuttlers or connective players or, yeah. or inside forwards. Or, See, yeah. I, I, I liked the idea of, um, he didn't have the execution in the end, but Oops. I liked the idea of Jovino. Oh, Jovino. Um, actually, I, I think Jovino was... You know, in Wenger's mind, when he looked at him and bought him, he thought, this is the guy that's going to get me to the byline. This is the guy that's going to take on the fullback that can go inside or outside, um, right or left. Unfortunately, Jovino was equally awful with his right and left. Um, so why but, did you, you know, give there, up on were... Theo so quickly in this team then, though? Because Theo clearly yeah. can can get to well, the byline and deliver. I mean, he had that great season with, with Van Persie where he did that a lot. Yeah, I mean, that... That's the player we need to replace in our setup. And I understand, I mean, you know, he stuck with Theo for a long yep. time and Theo didn't really improve. His end product was was very, very good. But obviously, you know, we've been over Theo millions and millions of times. I mean, that's the player we really need to replace in our setup. Um, you know, a, a better, more refined version of Theo Walcott. Um, someone who can add that uh, that kind of goal threat. Someone who can... You know, maybe alongside Aubameyang, it doesn't work quite so much because Aubameyang really does like to stay up front. But then I think that opens up a gap in the in the kind of number 10 position because, as you say, Ozil drifts around. And then, you know, does that then, convince, you know, make Ramsey think that he has to kind of go forward? I agree with Clive. I think Ramsey's goal should be a nice bonus um, rather than, you know, a focal point of the team. And, yeah, I... I I would like another goal scorer um, in there, quite frankly, and and that's not you know that's nothing against Mkhitaryan. I think he's a really good player um, and a player I've liked for a little while. Is it a and case? Quite frankly, sorry, go ahead. Özil, Özil, you know he gets the sniffles um, quite a bit, and he gets knee injuries when we're playing away games. Um, never when we're playing home games. When we're playing away games, he gets you know. He, he puts in for his annual leave. Starting and to sound so a little Mkhitaryan, like me here, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> and so Mkhitaryan is a very useful player to have around because he can play all across, uh, you know, that kind of... He can play as a number 10. He can play nominally as one of the wide players. I think he's really useful to have in that respect. And for those, you know, when we go to Newcastle away and, and Ozil's on annual leave again. But, yeah, I, I still think we need another goal scorer in there. I, I completely agree with Clive. I don't think we... We bother teams enough um, in that respect, and that's why, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote that piece suggesting that Lacazette and Aubameyang together um, might be worth investigating. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think given what we need in midfield and what we may be losing in midfield, and given what we need at centre back, and given what we need at goalkeeper, while we all agree we probably need another scorer and we definitely need a wide forward, it may be a case where we have to find a way to put Mkhitaryan, Lacazette, and Aubameyang on the pitch together with Ozil to get those goals because we don't have uh, the ability to buy in all of those positions, or, or at least I, I doubt we do. So it'll be interesting to see. Mm. One player who I was all the way out on, and I have to admit I have to get a little back in on because of his performances, is Granite Xhaka. He was excellent against Milan, um, excellent at the weekend as well. I, I, I just think he has been sitting deeper. He has been 
more able to get some time on the ball and distribute and keep things ticking over, and he's been tracking back more, which isn't just a system thing. There's definitely a focus component to it that seems to have switched on for him. Clive, is there anything you can put your finger on about what has improved Chaka, and have you been as impressed with, again, it's a little green shoot of recovery. Let's not go overboard here, but have you been impressed with this this period, and in particular how he did against Milan? Yeah, he's, he's been great in both those games. And um, he gets played a lot. I don't, I'm not sure if he's... I might have missed one league game, if at all. If He might have played in every single Premiership game. And when you watch us play, we give him the ball a lot. And we trust him. And it's all to do with his, his passing and pace of path. And, and length of pass. Again, when you watch the team, the ability to switch the balls from side to side is really important to create the isolations and the um, and the overloads. And he's the only one that can do it. He's the only one. And then he does it a little bit, but he's the one I trust to do it. And he really moves the ball well. I, I, the defensive side, I, I, I think he's settled back into his slot. I think there was a period when he was fighting for the same piece of grass as Ramsey and Jack, particularly when Jack was there. I think he thought, well, I'm not going to stand behind Jack. I'm going to push forward and see what happens. And there were some games, particularly Liverpool game, I felt he was in the wrong parts of the pitch all of the time. And he got a lot of stick that day because then his fundamentals of simple short passes went and people started to pick on him and he scored a good goal and was very aggressive in his celebrations. And um, But for me, he's one of those 25-year-olds that I think the future the club's in, in his hands. And I've never really criticised him heavily uh, because yeah, me neither. Wanted, he, has, he, has, <laughs> <laughs> he has he has to work. And his best games are good enough. I've looked around at other... I always look at other players. Well, I look around at Matic, who's getting a lot of praise right now. I look at I look at Shaq and I look at Matic and I think well I, I'd rather have Shaq in my team. He's twenty five. Matic is towards thirty. Uh, no, I, I have Shaq. I think he's got more about him. He's got a better range. I think he I think he can do more. You know, I look at uh, what Steve Lins on to the other day and I thought he was very very good uh, against Manchester United. But he's very similar to to Shaq. So if we need some if we need somebody in there, it's got to be an all action athlete an all action box to box type player that's really that when teams turn up the heat intensity wise we can go with them we can run with them and take the ball off them and drive them back so i, I don't want to say the name but he's that Vieira type not gilberto type we need we need a mm-hmm. Vieira type in my opinion somebody good good news is those here. are laying around everywhere so we'll just pick one yeah yeah you know like the guy that played against us for, you know for what for that decore that type of player that can sit in and, uh, or Zachariah, who plays for Switzerland, that can sit in. Charlie Adam, also, maybe. Yeah, but also <laughs> when it gets quite aggressive, when it gets quite high intensity, when you need to get physical, he can drive the game as well. And and we're reliant on Ramsey and uh, Jack to do that job. And I'm not sure they're the, for a lot of the games in England. One, neither of them are there all the time due to injury, and funny enough, he's managing me small games and Jack this season. And and two, not every game suits them, and I, I, I'm okay with rotation in that position. But Jacka is the one person that sets up game plan off, and uh, fair play to him. I, I yeah. think he's almost uh, in a situation where apart from Elneny, no one else can do his job. I'm not sure what to make of him, I, and I mean it's it's so funny too, right? Because what happened at the very end of the first leg in Italy? He took a terrible shot late in the game that went in a row Z, and the manager was apoplectic with rage. 
And you think most players like, oh, gosh, manager's that furious. You get drummed in your head. Don't do that again. And I realize he scored, but it's another situation where we're in control. We've got possession. I mean, we're not in control. The, you know, the tie is still alive at some level, but we've got possession. There are players pushed up the pitch, and he shoots from, you know, a position that has a very, very, very low chance of going in. And he doesn't even catch it that cleanly. And it sneaks in, and it's a goal. But it just it's funny because clearly – he doesn't care. He's going to do what he wants to do. I will say, in the build-up to the, the, the Welbeck second, I guess that was our third goal, um, El Nenny has br- a brilliant play. He receives the ball right in the center of the pitch, opens his body to receive it, and then slides a line-breaking pass into Danny Welbeck. And it just I think that dynamism that's now creeping into his game makes him a player who has to get consideration for playing in a part of the pitch where we have a lot of flawed players. But, I mean, Tim, do you do you agree that there's been a resurgence in Chaka's game and that is there a, a reason you want to point to beyond just maybe him rededicating himself? Uh, yeah, there has been. There has been. He's been really, really good um, lately. And I, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. Maybe he's acclimatizing a bit. Maybe it's just a bit of form. Um, I tend to think Ramsey has played, um, particularly in these two legs against Milan, has, has played a, a far more disciplined role um, alongside him. He's, he's really kind of stuck with him, and that's kind of helped. And I think Xhaka and Elneny in home games <clears throat> can work quite well. I, like, I tend to think, I listened to a discussion you guys had, maybe it was after the Watford podcast, and I, I tend to think Elneny's best performances are always at home and his worst ones are always away. Um, and I wonder if that's just to do with the amount of time um, our deeper midfielders get on the ball um, when we play at the Emirates. And I, I tend to think that that might be a little bit at play here as well. Um, and, you know, those those distances look a bit better. One really interesting thing, Xhaka's last five goals have been against Manchester United Liverpool, Chelsea, AC Milan, and um, there's another one in there that I've that I've forgotten. But um, so he can't do it on a wet, cold night in Stoke, <laughs> is what you're saying? No, no. But all his goals come um, against some of the bigger teams, which is which is really odd. And again, maybe that's just because he gets a little bit more time on the ball. <clears throat> to, I mean, do you do you want him shooting? Up. Do you want him shooting from range? I mean, do, 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 in Not, your ideal world, would you get that out of his game? Um. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, sometimes you've got to pick your moment, right? And sometimes it falls for you nicely. Sometimes you feel good. And, you know, if you're judicious about it, like, and the ball drops nicely for you, you've got plenty of time and there's nothing better on, then I'm kind of fine with it. I'm I'm not sure um, judiciousness is one of Xhaka's better qualities. Uh, I think he's quite impulsive. Um, but But what's really weird as well is that, a lot of his shots have been quite savable. I mean, there's that one that against Liverpool, which Mignolet made a balls of because Mignolet is a dreadful goalkeeper. Um, Donnarumma certainly isn't. So that seemed like a, a weird mistake. Um, I mean, it is a mistake, right? That's that. He's yeah, got oh, yeah. A- absolutely. Absolutely. And against the one he scored against Man U took a massive deflection. So, you know, maybe there's just an element of luck in all of them as well. But yeah, I, I think he's been far better at dictating, kind of helping us to dictate the pace of the game um, recently. And he, even against Brighton, I thought he was one of our better players. So yeah, he's he's playing far, far better um, recently. And, and to be honest with you, I really don't know what's behind it, but long may it continue. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So Clive, I mean, we, we win the game. I don't think there's anything more we have to, to talk about in the game specifically, but I, I want to just dig into the Jack issue real quick, and then we can talk before we say goodbye about um, 
uh, CSKA Moscow, and Tim can give us yeah. a little bit on the Continental Cup as well that the ladies won. So, with respect to Jack, I mean, I I think he's in this interesting role right now where he's he's kind of almost doing the Awobi job, right? Shuttle the ball, connect the play from midfield and and the forwards. He's getting the help from deeper-lying midfielders who can cover more ground and have more defensive responsibility. He's getting help up front from the players who can make the runs. Is that enough from him? Are we getting enough from him? I, I, mean, I have to admit, I'm kind of... I was encouraged by how he was playing in December and January. I think he, he was more than just a valuable squad player at that point. He was one of our better performers during a very rough patch for us. But I think he has slid back. I think his... his, dur- his not his durability. That's not the word I'm looking for. But his... his um, I'm not going to pull it out of the hat right at the moment. but Impact, Impactfulness. Well, yeah, I, I was looking for essentially just his, his ability to maintain his levels throughout the game, and I don't know why I can not – endurance, there you go. His, I think his endurance is, has, has to be called into question. So, I mean, overall, and having said that, he did make a crucial contribution at the very end of the second leg to get us our third goal. But how do you feel about his performances of late and whether he should be in the team as we go forward to the, the quarterfinals? So I, I sort of split on this, right? Because he's he's playing he's playing higher. He's playing ten. Ozil's playing to the right and Kazan to the left. And so again, the manager has reduced the space for him. And what he's doing quite smartly is he's he's feeling the game and knowing when to drop in to make the third one. And he doesn't really go wide too often, but he's he makes he's making runs. He's doing everything that's required of him in that role. But I, my my eyes tell me that physically. I prefer him behind the ball. Do you see what I mean? From a deeper position. When he's behind the ball, my my heart rate falls down because I think he's going to pick the right parts. He's going to know when to pop. He knows when to turn out. He knows when to drive. When he's higher, he can do those things, but I just don't have the same level of confidence in him. And then I came away from the stadium thinking, well, you know what? If Lacazette comes back or we have to make changes, say we're going to the next leg and Lacazette's back and I, I would, you know, I would seriously play Welbeck in that team and maybe Jack comes out, right? And I'd have the extra forward. You'd play Welbeck right and Lacazette, position. right? Keep Welbeck's uh, yeah, power would, and running and, and, and energy definitely. in there, but then have Lacazette's sort of smoother, more controlled yeah, striker exactly. player. Yeah, and, exactly. And Jack would be the player I would take out. Now, then I went home and looked at all the compilations that fly around and he had a really impactful game. Some of the best things came from his play. So I walked away from the stadium thinking, you can be improved upon. You're better deeper. When I went back and watched it again and watched the little clips again, you know, he was really there, making moves, really doing behind some of the best things that we did. So I, I sway on him, if I'm honest. Um, and the whole contract thing is sort of in my mind. What's going on there? Uh, is it going to work out? The, the, the whole fan thing I call him like almost like he's our Mark Noble he's the player that represents us like they do like Mark Noble does at West Ham I think that's clouding a lot of people's views when I watch that's, the and player, it's not irrelevant by the way I mean I, I don't think we should just dismiss it as irrelevant I realize there are some people no, who would do no. that but I you you're still trying to run a business that connects with its its customers its fans you know yeah and we are and we are terrible at that as a club we don't connect you know the board doesn't connect our our owners absent and you know Kazidis is the only one that tries to, and when he does, he yeah, gets. You can understand why it. people have latched on to Jack a little bit, and it's not just a, a Brexity thing. Although I love saying that because I think it's hilarious, but it's it's because he represents a, a true attachment to the club and part of the club's culture. 
yeah, and he connects to the fans. He knows what to do. He knows what to say. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're feeling. And he says it. And sometimes when you watch him play, he almost knows what the fans are saying and he reacts to it. And I sort of admire him for that. He knows when I, when I see it, when I admire him the most is when things are going wrong. Because he stands up and says, I'm not prepared to accept this. No, this is not happening with me around. And he tries to do something. There's a lot of our players, when things are going wrong, they let it go wrong. Good time players. They don't show up. They don't put themselves out. They don't show for the ball. They hide. And he's not one that does that. So I look at that. I think, you're a brave player. You care about what you're doing. You care about the result. You don't accept things happening to the football club. And I think that's why the fans like him, because that's how you feel when you're sitting or standing there. You're thinking, is someone going to sort this out? And he's the one that always tries to. Right, so that's the not that not that it always comes off. <laughs> not that it always comes off, but you can. That's what the fans appreciate, right? Someone that does that, and and uh, I think some of our players who we put on pedestals don't do that. In fact, they go the other way, and we still put them on the pedestals. You know, and um, so yeah. yeah ironically, I, 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 and and I know I'm cutting across you quite a bit here, but it's kind of no, funny, right? Because we mate. we've had a conversation about him, we've had a conversation about Shaq, we've had a conversation about Danny Welbeck, and to your point about the players that don't always do that, that don't always respect the club and fight for the club. I mean, this is a game where quietly Mesedozo broke his own record for chances created in the European competition with six. So, yeah, you know, the blood and the guts and the blood and the thunder and all that, it's great, but you still need to produce, right? You got to produce, and then some people walk away and think, "What did Ozil do?" Right. Well, so is he? He's now on a different wage level, and so people are now going to judge him differently, like we did with Theo. Right? Theo was somebody I thought was a decent player at eighty grand a week. When you're getting 130, 140, people expect you to trap it, head it to yourself, and score. Right? And so that's the that's the issue. And Özil now has gone up into that level. Since so he has three bad games, the press are going to turn on him because he earned close to a million pounds three bad games. And that's not good enough, right? So um, so the pressure will go back onto him, right? So Jack's sitting there thinking, well, we can pay us all this. And Ramsey's around the corner waiting for his 200. Why am I taking a pay cut? Why am I the one? Am I the junior boy? Am I the junior boy at work, the apprentice? He doesn't get the same money as the guys coming in. And he's fighting for his career. And he's thinking, well, I stand up. I'm brave. I understand. I love this club. Why am I being treated differently? And I've got a funny feeling to end up pretty bad and... I think it'll go down bad amongst the fans. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because I, I can think of legitimate footballing reasons not to re-sign him. I mean, I, depending on the wage, I think he's a player who could be an extraordinarily valuable squad player because of what he brings in terms of an energy and a connection to the club and also his ability. I don't know that he should be a starting midfielder for us going forward. And there is a question of if you retain him, will he accept that? And I don't know that he will. I think his England place is very important to him as well. So a lot of open questions there. Tim, before we get on to the Continental Cup victory, because I want to make sure we give you a chance to talk about that, we're into a quarterfinal in Europe. Very, very, very long time since that happened, and it occurred to me as it was happening that this really means something to me now, and I've, yeah. I've always enjoyed European competition. Admittedly, it's always been the Champions League, but this competition has felt horrific at times in terms of its quality, yeah. its meaning. I mean, empty stadiums, you know, six o'clock kickoff times, ridiculous shit that goes on. And then we get AC Milan and we win in the San Siro and we win a, at home and it's a big night at the Emirates, you know, the biggest night probably since, as Clyde pointed out to me, the, the FA Cup win over Spurs, but there haven't been many. I mean, 
the Barcelona game would be the last really big one I can think of. And now it feels important to me, and it feels special, and I think we've gotten a good draw. So really quickly, how much does this mean to you now as someone who I think would agree, having connected with it completely, mm-hmm. and how are you feeling about the draw? Yeah, I, so I I was delighted to draw AC Milan. It was, it was kind of exactly what I wanted for the reasons you've stated, I think it gave um, the importance uh, the the competition a real injection of meaning and prestige for us, even though this is a really, really poor Milan side and you could tell they desperately lack um, a half-decent striker and, you know, a lot of their players, uh, you know, are rubbish, quite frankly, nowadays. But nevertheless, they got to this stage. Going to Milan is never easy. They're confident. They're on the back of a good run in their own league. So, you know, I, I felt this was exactly what we needed in that it, it was a name, um, but it was a beatable name uh, in its current guise. A little bit like uh, Whisper It Quietly when we beat Real Madrid in the Champions League the year we got to the final. You know, that was a Real Madrid team who were completely on their last legs. You know, Ronaldo was overweight and he went that summer. Zidane retired that summer. Roberto Carlos went that summer. I think Figo went that summer. They broke that team up. Um, because it was right at the you know it was aging and so we beat a bit of an imitation Real Madrid side but it didn't matter because it was Real Madrid and it really really gave us that boost which you know I think got us to the final um, in the end I'm not suggesting this is quite as seismic as that but I felt it was exactly what our participation in this competition needed and yeah once you get to the quarterfinal like you say we haven't been to one of those but a little while, you you know, the final starts to come in sight. And Seska is, you know, don't get me wrong, it's it's a difficult draw. They knocked out Leon in the last round, which is no mean feat, particularly because Leon would have been super pumped to get to the final in their own stadium. So, um, you know, we know they're a dangerous opponent. We know the difficulties of travelling to Russia, and I, I don't think we've ever won in Russia under Arsene Wenger, and it's the second leg as well. So we've got a bit to do in the first leg at home to you know to go there and feel confident but you know we're still the favorites and we still should beat them and we should go through and then you're in the semi-finals and and it starts to get real and I think also what we've got is we've got the Premier League is like disappearing into the rearview mirror and the Europa League is coming up on the horizon increasingly as every game passes. Um, do you think now? the manager and, will see it that way, or do you worry that he'll yeah. s- sort of stubbornly hang on? I mean, we have Manchester United, I believe, between these two legs, and it is an absolutely mm. meaningless game, but it's Jose Mourinho and it's at Old Trafford. Is there is there pressure on the manager the to get this? Oh, that, that would, sorry, but, but the semi. But even still, I yeah, mean, yeah. You, yeah, that's good, I guess, but not good in the sense that do you think Arsene Wenger would be able to be pragmatic enough to fully rotate and, and throw that away? Or do you think that's going to be too big a um, pressure to resist? I, I think I don't think he'll fully rotate. So we've got Stoke at home and Southampton at home um, kind of around this game. I, I think we'll get some light rotation, a bit like we got for Watford. Um, you know, something of like that. Obviously, Aubameyang's not an issue. He, he does have to get anyway, Lacazette so. some minutes, right? I mean, he can't just throw yeah. Lacazette on against CSK without having played him, so... Yeah, exactly. He's he's. I'd imagine he'd feature to some extent against Stoke at the, at the very least off the bench. I think um, I read that he was possibly fit for the Milan game, but they wanted to take the international break out of the equation yeah. for him. Um, so they did. So they didn't go with it. So he's got an extra couple of weeks training. So 
yeah, he'll definitely. I'm certain he'll get some minutes. And yeah, as you say, he he really really needs them. Um, but I I think you know we'll see some light rotation for those games. If we get to the semi, I think we might see some heavier rotation. And um, particularly because by the time the semi-finals come around, if we've qualified, it it could be mathematic like the top four could be mathematically done. Um, you know, we're what thirteen points back. Yeah, I mean it's it's um, done as it is. So but yeah, it's, get your it's, point. Yeah, it's it's totally done. But it could be mathematically done by then. So um, you know, well, be, and to be fair, he'd be playing no a Jose reason. Mourinho who did this very same thing last season, who chucked yeah. the league at the end. So I mean, he yeah. Jose can say whatever the hell he wants, but Arson would be well within his right to do the very same thing, especially yeah, in the yeah, semifinal. Yeah. So, um, well, okay. I, I mean, quick word from each of you. How are you feeling in terms of on, on a scale of zero to 10 confidence that we can get past CSK? Um, probably eight. I, I think we were I'm, I'm the only thing that slightly worries me is the second leg being away, but, um, we should win. I, I do think we'll go through. I think we're, we're in a, a better place now, and um, and I think we're super focused on this competition. So I think we'll have enough to get through. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. I, I, Clive, I mean, are you in that range? Yeah, I am. And the word super focused, I mean, for what we spoke about earlier about the Milan game, there was a focus about how we played. And there was a reaction to things that happened, which tells me the club is focused on this. And um Cup team Arsenal back in the room, right? That's what we are. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I think we'll get through no problem. Something to play for. I mean, Jose himself said you can start to smell the the final when you're once you're in the quarterfinal. So hopefully they can smell it, and it smells good. So we'll finish with this. And and Tim, I think it's interesting because the women's football is popular in the United States. The U.S. Mm. women's team has been exceptionally successful. They've produced some incredible talent, and I have had a tremendous pleasure watching them. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a regular fan, but I, I, I've watched them in big tournaments and really enjoyed it. And I, I think w- women's football at the international level is very enjoyable. It's not something I have easy access to watching at the club level. So I haven't really followed the Arsenal women, but I know you follow it very closely. I know you report on it, and they recently won the Continental Cup. So maybe you can give us sort of a quick summary of you know, how the Arsenal women are doing, what the, what the program's like, and, and what it was like winning that trophy. And I realize that could be an hour-long yeah. podcast. But, if, you know, <laughs> if you want to give us sort of your state of, state of the women's, uh, Arsenal women's game in five minutes yeah. or less, that would be great. Yeah, so this, this was a huge win, um, really, because they beat Manchester City in the final, and that's hugely important. I think, um, and, you know, I quite understand that most Arsenal fans probably just dip in and out and hear pretty much every year, oh, the girls have won a trophy again. Um, you know, aren't they great? And and in many respects, that's true. But um, I think Jordan Nobbs, who is one of, in my opinion, the best player that we have, you know, she this was the fifth time She'd won this particular trophy with Arsenal and she said, this is the best. This is the best time because of the way um, women's football is in England at the moment. Um, Manchester City have invested a lot of money. Chelsea have invested a lot of money. They've all brought their facilities up. Everything's professionalised very rapidly. Um, But at the same time, I think people assume that it's very analogous to the men's game in that, oh, Arsenal were at the top of the tree and then Man City and Chelsea chucked a load of money at it. And now we're not anymore. And actually, Arsenal have chucked a lot of money at it in response. Um, Arsenal women are far more analogous to Manchester United in men's terms, in terms of they've got the very recent history and the prestige. And they've been a little bit knocked off their perch recently. They've not won the league for a few years. 
um, and that's not for that's not because of investment because they've spent a lot of money. Um, but you know they didn't start the season brilliantly. The manager left because you know results weren't going particularly well, and the morale in the squad was quite low. So they hired a new coach in December, Joe Montemoro. And um, if anyone's seen any of the uh, Arsenal, just put out a really nice mini movie, um, five minute behind the scenes mini movie of the, of the night of the whole day actually of the Continental Cup final. And um, it's been doing the rounds, but Joe Montemoro does a little huddle with them at the end. And he says, uh, this is the platform, more trophies, we're Arsenal, Arsenal are back. And and actually, that's hugely important because Arsenal haven't really challenged for the league when they should have. They have actually underperformed, again, like Manchester United, for the resources they've put into it. And so this was a huge thing in terms of their confidence because, because of the start they had, they probably can't win the league, although they're very, very rapidly making up ground. They've... Um, won their last six, seven clean sheets in a row. So they're building confidence. They have a ton of games and coming up was, too, right? A little bit of fixture congestion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they should get to the FA Cup final as well. The The path is there um, to, to go and play at Wembley in May and it will probably be Chelsea or Man City in the final again. Um, and, and But where the ladies, the, the women have been analogous to the men in recent years is they're a good cup team um, because they've got great individuals who could who can turn up on the day and um, this was hugely important because it kind of feels like Arsenal are rebuilding again towards getting back into the Women's Champions League and uh, challenging for the title again under this new manager and they'll have uh, you know there's a lot of um, there's a a lot of promising players who are going to be coming in this summer um, particularly from Germany Um, so they're, they're really looking at strengthening um, again and yeah, yeah. This was I, I think Joe Montemuro, the manager, his words. You know, we are Arsenal. We're back. That that was the kind of feeling of the night because yeah. Man City are in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. They got to the semi-finals last year. They're the FA Cup holders. They won the league last year. You know, this is a big team, and they beat them, and they deserve to beat them. And I think um, for their long term, long to medium term future, this was a huge thing. And it was just, it was a hugely delightful. A delightful night. I know how hard um, a lot of a lot of those girls work um, for nights like this. And you know, you spoke you spoke about the U.S. women's national team. This was um, Heather O'Reilly's first Arsenal trophy, um, and it would be her contract ends at the end of this season. But yeah. I know she's she's really enjoyed her time in England. I, I really hope she sticks around for another year. She's someone that's really bought into the club. She goes to most of the men's home games. She goes to other Premier League games. She's really really tried to drink in the english football experience i really hope she stays for another year but um yeah i you know i've spoken about this with you offline a bit i think heather o'reilly is someone on the men's side they could have used a bit more um in terms of their marketing because she's hugely well known um in america um and you know she's kind of an asset that we have at the football club so um yeah it was it, it was a fantastic night and uh really pleased for all of them they probably can't win the league but would be great if they could win the FA Cup as well. That's great. So, so for anybody who's not following the women and who might want to at least have a look, you know, see what it's about. Mm. What would be a big game, a good game that's on the horizon that someone should target to to look out for, as opposed to just sort of your regular, hey, we're playing Huddersfield at home kind of thing. Well, they're playing at home to Chelsea on the first of April at home, um, and if they're if they're going to qualify for the Champions League, they really have to win this. It's 
It's uh, being screened live on BBC, so you should be able to pick up a stream. And that's Easter, problem, isn't it? Yeah, the problem is it clashes with our home game against Stoke. Um, it's on at the same time, which is a slight frustration. But other than that, they should be in the FA Cup semi-final. They really should beat Charlton, who are two divisions below them in the quarterfinal. Okay. That will also be on BBC Great. on the 15th of April. So, yeah. All right, so some good things to look for. The Chelsea game, if you want to uh, bin the, the the meaningless Stoke Premier League <laughs> game, and then you could try to check out the FA Cup semi-final, assuming we don't choke it away in the quarterfinal. Okay, well, Tim, I appreciate that. Tim's on Twitter, at Stilberto. My pleasure, as always. And uh, thanks for putting up with the croaky voice. No, I, I, I hardly noticed it. I, as, as you do, I, I mute it when you guys are talking and, and just read the newspaper. Who am I kidding? I just read Twitter. Uh, Clive's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thanks a lot, mate. Yeah, always a pleasure. Um, my name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review. Uh, do that. Do it. Because when you do that, you make your voice heard. And then when we see that you gave us a five-star review, uh, we quietly say nice things about you on our WhatsApp group. So that's good. But you can say nasty things in the in the review itself, just as long as it has five stars. Fine, everybody wins. In any event, we will be back uh, in 72 years when we play our next game. It's, it's in April, I think, actually. Uh, oh, well, as we now know, thanks to Tim, it's April 1st. It's <laughs> Easter Sunday. So we will celebrate uh, what is a very special day. And by special day, I mean beating the Orcs, Arsenal 10, Stoke Nils.